Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. I have uh, a portion of the verses there on the insert. We'll look at verses 1 through 25. It's on page 855 in your pew Bible if you need to have it open for those last verses that I won't be reading to start anyways. The most famous reading of the Christmas season probably comes in Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed, depending on which version you grew up reading or listening to. In those days, for the next four weeks, let us work our way through chapter one and half of chapter two. Michael Wilcock, who writes a commentary on this uh, Gospel of Luke, states the following, Luke sets the facts about Jesus out with a remarkable fullness, accuracy, and meaningful order and demands our closest attention. Granted this, we may expect it to lay deep in our hearts the infallible basis of spiritual certainty in a world where all else is changing and inconsistent. The story of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus starts with the story of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John. That's what we are introduced to first in this gospel account from Luke. I will read the first 17 verses of chapter 1, but keep your Bibles open to chapter 1. Hear now as I read God's inspired and inerrant word, Luke 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many, the children of Israel, to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready 
for the Lord, a people prepared. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled and amazed by your sovereignty and your providence that would bring together the plan of salvation for sinners through Christ. We are astounded that our Lord Jesus would humble himself to come in the way that he did. We are gripped by your gospel account that displays the events leading to Jesus' birth. Through your Holy Spirit, please, O Lord, guide us in our understanding of your word this hour, that we might not only know what is true, but also what to do. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It is our delightful task to work through first the first chapter into the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke over these four weeks designated for reflecting on Jesus' incarnation known as Advent, his coming into time and space, his advent into time and space. It's God fulfilling the promises that we have been considering, what we are always considering, but especially in our study of Isaiah. We have seen this 700 years before Jesus forecasted over and over and over again. The last prophetic voice in the Old Testament era happened from Malachi, 400 years before. There's this silent period, and then we have this as gospel, uh, as the Gospel of Luke records it. It's an important uh, feature of the Gospels for us to remember their purpose. They're to declare the truth of what really happened. In fact, I, I like what J.C. Ryle says, uh, capturing this thought. He said that Christianity is a religion built upon facts. Let us never lose sight of this. It came unto mankind at first in this shape. The first preachers did not go up and down the world proclaiming an elaborate artificial system of abstruse doctrines and deep philosophic principles. They made it their first business to tell men great plain facts. They went about telling a sin-laden world that the Son of God had come down to earth and lived for us and died for us and has risen again. The gospel at its first publication was far more simple than many make it now. It was neither more nor less than the history of Jesus Christ. In fact, we could say that the Bible itself presents to us the truth. It presents the history of God and his fulfilling of the promises he made for redemption as a way of curing our unbelief. Written to his people primarily. We can't understand it unless he gives his spirit for us to understand. And he knows we struggle with unbelief. And so we have the record of his word, God revealing himself, so we know how to be right with him and what he has done to make that happen. And Luke is one of four inspired gospel writers to paint that picture for us. And we'll spend our time there for the next few weeks. I want you to see how it is that the Bible presents this history of God's fulfilling promises as a way of curing our unbelief by this first chapter. Look there with me as you see Luke state in his opening verses the reason for writing this gospel. He is one of four gospel writers. He's the only Gentile of the group. He comes with another angle on the life and ministry of Christ. But you'll notice that the story of Christ was well known in the time of Luke. There are many who were eyewitnesses. Follow at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So he begins by saying, the story is out. I mean, we are full of the story of Christ. There would be plenty of people to check each other about the truth of the thing. 
Luke writes not even 30 years after Jesus. That's not long at all, especially in a culture that was primarily oral. They were very careful about what they said in relaying a true story. And so the story was abounding, but Luke looks ahead to the next generation. Luke himself wasn't a personal eyewitness of Jesus himself. He was an accompaniment of Paul. And so he hears from all the eyewitnesses, and he recognizes really as a second-generation Christian to some degree that they need to tap into that first generation while they're there. And that's the Holy Spirit's leading in the gospel writer to do this, but it's very practical what we see have happen. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. We have the eyewitnesses here. So if the gospel writers write their account while the eyewitnesses are there, that's how you have surety about the story. The Holy Spirit behind it all, of course, but he works very logically to secure or cement the story, the account, while the eyewitnesses are still there to verify. Now, there was no great uprising when the Gospels came out, people saying, this isn't true. That's fake news. Nobody was saying that. Because it was true. They were there to substantiate it. They could say it was actual. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now look at what Luke says. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke, we know, is an, is a, an assistant to Paul. He traveled with him at times. So he's writing this after having spent time on, with Paul on missionary journeys. He writes Luke and he writes Acts as one big, really two-volume history of what happened. Uh, the, the good news, according to Luke, of Jesus and the Acts of the Apostle that followed from Christ's commissioning. That's Luke's work. It's, it's over 25% of the New Testament. Uh, he's a very careful writer, a very orderly writer, a very learned writer. And he's a Gentile. So he comes... Uh, with a different set of eyes, not the same history that Matthew comes with, yet telling the same story, the same as John's story and Mark's. Mark's probably the earliest. He probably would have read Mark's gospel before he starts to pen his own. Could have even been one of his sources that he went to, for sure, as a first eyewitness account. But notice what the purpose is, the buildup for the purpose. Verse 4 states it for us. He writes to this Theophilus, who may be a real person who is some kind of government official, most excellent Theophilus, but surely he represents anybody who would read this with uh, needing to be secured in the truth. Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke decides to write this account so that we would have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Theophilus had been taught about Christ. He had been taught the facts of Jesus' life, what Jesus did, why he came. There were still eyewitnesses around in his life. But now to cement this, Luke wants to put this down so that he may have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. That's the purpose of the Gospel of Luke. That's the reason he writes it. It's a good remembrance for the whole of Scripture, that the Bible is there for us so that we would know the truth. That's true of the Gospel, the Gospels, the other three accounts. Uh, the New Testament was written so that we would know the truth. Uh, the Old Testament was written so that we would know the truth. Knowing God and how to be right with God has to be revealed by God because of the sin barrier. 
Um, we can know there is a God just by seeing creation. That's logical. That's rational. Um, but we wouldn't know how to be right with him. We wouldn't understand how it is that we are estranged from him, even though we may be able to feel it. We wouldn't know unless he reveals himself. And he does so by his spirit through the writers of scripture, through the prophets and the apostles. And as the apostles give proof to, or they give credibility to what Luke says. Remember, the apostles are alive when Luke writes. They can say, yea, you're nay to this. And they endorse this as a true gospel account. The purpose of scripture is so that we would know the truth to cure our unbelief. That's why the message of Christ is given. So verse 5 then begins by telling the true story of Jesus Christ according to Luke. It displays in its telling the stirring of ancient prophecies. Prophecies you should be familiar with as we have studied Isaiah. Um, For hundreds of years before, God through the prophets is revealing how Messiah would come, the anointed one, the Christ, the great and faithful servant to redeem us from our sins. It's been told over and over and over and over again for the centuries before, and now the story starts to stir with life as now the voice of prophecy comes back. For 400 years it had been silent from the time of Malachi. Now an angel comes to speak to an old priest, tell him how that this would, how the advent would happen. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, it's rooted in history, real history. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So it's in the time of the first of the three main Herods. There are three Herod kings. Um, It's the house of Herod. They were basically endorsed by Rome to sit on the throne of Israel to in their mind, to appease the Jews that they had autonomy in their king. But the Jews could not stand the Herods because they were only half Jewish. The Herods liked all that it entailed, this royalty within Rome, and so they stood there with great pride. They tried to do great building projects to make Judea and Jerusalem a great wonder of the world. The whole temple complex um, built up by Herod the Great, the one who is referred to here. There was another Herod for the bulk of Jesus' life, that fox Herod, Jesus refers to him as. But then there's a third Herod, the one that he stands before before he's crucified. This is Herod the Great, who only lived a few years after the time of Christ. In those days, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. His name is Zechariah, and he was in the division Abijah. We know from Chronicles 23 and 24, First Chronicles, that there are multiple divisions, 24 divisions. This is one of them. We know from sources dated to this time, there were as many as 20,000 priests who were in in active duty during the time of Christ. Now, a great crisis happened when 70 AD occurs and the Romans wipe out the temple complex. Uh, You have all these priests who no longer have service. That's how we know how many there were. Now, some were bivocational. They weren't all always serving in the temple complex. The temple complex was huge. It wasn't just the temple itself and all the inner workings. It had to do with upkeep, taking care of it, dealing with uh, pastoral issues even. They functioned as shepherds. And so they were the sons of Aaron, the, the Levites. And Zechariah was an old priest, advanced in years. He had a wife who was also from the daughters of Aaron, which was somewhat unusual. Her name was Elizabeth. Uh, extremely uh, elite line that he comes from, and he functions 
as a priest in this capacity. And it's this Zechariah, while his division is taking care of the temple complex, and usually those, they would take care for two-week periods. A whole bunch of priests, hundreds of them would be working. Then they would cast lots to see who got to go into the temple itself and the Holy of Holies, the holy place, to burn incense as a sign of prayer from the people because a sacrifice had been made. Now they can enter this throne. It's a picture of entering the throne room, the picture that every believer has because of the finished work of Christ. But before the finished work of Christ, the priests represented the people as mediators. They're just like the people. And so twice a day there would be a sacrifice in the morning and the afternoon, and the priest would go in and light the incense. It was the highest honor of a priest's life. They only got to do it once. And here he is in his advanced years, probably figuring it passed him. He wasn't going to get a chance. Many did not get a chance to. But here the text tells us that he was able to burn this incense. But notice how he and his wife are described. This is important. This is not just a, a nominal priest, one who just was born a Levite, so became this professional priest. He was devout. He believed God's promise of Messiah to come. Notice verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, don't mistake this for saying they were perfect. Uh, they lived so holy, and they, were, they, they, they didn't violate any of the commandments. That's not what it means. It, notice what it says. They were both righteous before God. Righteousness before God, always everywhere in Scripture, is through God's promised Messiah. Abraham believed God's promises, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's always justification by faith in God's promise for a Redeemer. Acknowledgement of sin, trust in the substitute. And they were righteous before God because they believed that God would send a Redeemer to Israel. They believed what they read in Isaiah, among other places. And in light of that belief... Their life reflected that, and that's what it says. Um, They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Blameless because they trusted in the one who was truly blameless. But they were holy people in that they were pious, they were devoted, faithful followers looking for a Messiah to come. That's who Zechariah and Elizabeth were. It's a beautiful picture of a couple devoted to God. But they experienced pain, great pain. It's only one verse, but it's great pain. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. No priest would come from Zechariah's line. Uh, No propagating of his family would come. So they live with this difficulty, yet at the same time, here he is serving as a priest and he is, as it tells us in verse 8 and following, he is able to perform the most sacred of acts at this time for priests. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is a great and high privilege, once in a lifetime. It would have been the highlight of a practicing priest's life and ministry, and especially for this man, Zechariah, who so truly believed in the gospel that God had declared through the word of God up until that point. Verse 10. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Two different hours of incense, morning and afternoon. We don't know which one. But the point is, he goes in probably the evening because of the way it describes him going home after. But there he is. As he goes in, people, 
devout people, people who believe in the consolation of Israel or the salvation of Israel through God. They wait for the priest to go in and offer that incense on their behalf and for him to come out. And when he comes out, he's able to pronounce um, a priestly benediction, like the one I use here sometimes that Aaron used. May the Lord bless you and keep you to make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. He would say that as he came out because he'd just been in the presence of God on behalf of the people. And here is Zechariah, his great day of opportunity. And we see the ancient prophecy stir now in verse 11. And when he's in the temple, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him, and rightly so. Um, This is not... um, romanticism's fat, chubby angel. This is a fearsome being that's described for us in Isaiah, at least the heavenly angels. We don't, they take different forms, but whatever the case, it's very common that we have this, this reaction. Fear falls upon them. And the angel speaks words that are common to speak when someone looks like they've been gripped by fear. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Think about it. When the angel appears to Zechariah, do not be afraid. Um, when the angel appears to Joseph in a dream, do not be afraid. When the angel appears to Mary, do not be afraid. When the angels appear to the shepherd, do not be afraid. These, these angels are, are magnificent, fearsome beings meant to be messengers. That's what the word angel means, of God. And they, they just immediately catch attention and put us in a, a place of fear, a rightful fear, uh, that needs to be calmed only by uh, the words that they may speak. And that's what you have here. Verse 12, as we can understand, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now I want you to think for a moment, what is that prayer in particular? What do you think it is? Well, it says next, And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So is it the prayer they prayed, praying for a son? Because you know they prayed that for the bulk of their, their married life. But one has to imagine in their advanced years, that maybe they stopped praying that prayer. I mean, that's a prayer they prayed heavily early, but at this point in their life, I'm guessing he probably wasn't praying that prayer the same way he used to. What is this prayer that's being answered? Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, there is some debate about this, but I don't think uh, it takes too much digging to realize what it must have been uh, the angels referring to. We see it in the text before us, and we see it around in other individuals. I think it's safe to say that Zechariah, functioning in the office of a priest, a mediator between the people and God, as appointed by God, sinful himself who has to sacrifice for himself, but is called to go in uh, to burn the incense as a representation of God, hearing the prayers of the people because of the sacrifice that was just made. In that capacity, what would be the common prayer of a man who we already know believed in God's Messiah to come? His wife did also. I think it's safe to say that the majority of the prayer that Zechariah had certainly connected with, or as much as he prayed for a son, was for God to save Israel, to do the thing he promised to do, the things that he said in Isaiah, the things that he says in Jeremiah, the things that he forecasts even earlier than that, and then later than that in the book of Malachi. He's praying for the consolation of Israel. Why do I think that? Well, in the same chapter that we'll get to in a couple weeks, chapter 2, you have Simeon and Anna, two people who are devout old Jewish people. And it describes them in this way. Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. 
And this man was righteous and devout. Sounds similar to Zechariah. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon was longing for the coming of Christ. Anna, a prophetess later in the same chapter. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up in the very hour, she began to give thanks to God to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So the people in the temple were there waiting for God to answer this, their prayer. So the prayer I believe that the angel speaking of is, is that prayer for the Christ, for the consolation of Israel, for Israel's redemption. But as is often the case, when we pray for God's will, he does personally joyous and amazing things at the same time. So in a bit, we'll be a bit hard on Zechariah because the text is, but if we were Zechariah and we we're in his state, in his life, you'd pause too if the angel said your wife's going to have a baby. It's an amazing, very human story of a man who's standing in the presence of God in a special way, in a God-ordained way. And notice what the passage goes on to say. Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Do you see the dual nature of the, the joy to the prayer? You will have joy and, glad, joy and gladness. You're going to have a child. You've been praying for your whole life. Many will rejoice at his birth. Many will rejoice at his birth. The corporate answer to prayer. Verse 15 continues. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Um, this is a Nazarite vow. This is the same vow Samson took but was not faithful in keeping, ultimately. And here you have John described how? In an Old Testament prophetic way. He is the link between the Old and the New Testament as the prophet of the Old Testament who comes to speak. And the Spirit of God is not regulated by our understanding as evidenced here. The Spirit of God could come when he wills. And so even when he's in the womb, the Holy Spirit is upon him. Because the Spirit can do that and does do that. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is important. The prophet's role is to speak to the people of God about God's redemption. It's about repentance. It's about redemption. And it's to the people of God. So John was not a widespread evangelist when he first came. He was coming to the people of Israel who should have known the gospel. They should have known the word. He was coming the same way Isaiah was coming to Judah. But now he's coming many years after silence and he speaks to the beleaguered Jews with this message of repentance and a baptism of repentance. He's speaking not to unchurched people but to seriously church people who had no longer believed or struggled with belief or only a few were still faithful. That's the story of an Old Testament prophet. It's the story of John. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord's Lord a people prepared. There are multiple Old Testament texts fulfilled in this. The prophet Joel speaks of this exact thing. The prophet Malachi writes, Behold, I send you a messenger, the last of the prophets, before John. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. I'm going to send Messiah, but I will send my messenger first. 
in Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall be set, set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Back to our text. Verse 17 of Luke 1. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. The ancient prophecy has come alive. It is about to be fulfilled in totality. The things that have been forecasted for hundreds of years before now are coming to pass. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to be the first to hear this and experience the actuality of it. Now, this leads us to the last point. The point that really speaks a certain message to every believer, all of us. It has to do with our struggle to believe God's promises. Even though we know his track record and we believe it, we still struggle with it. Because it hasn't happened in our life yet, or we think it can't happen because it would, it would have to be a miracle, or would have to go against some, something that's naturally observed. And that's totally where Zechariah is. Now, recognize this isn't a usual revelation that God gives people. This is very unusual. Notice the promise. Again, verse 13. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, he's very astute with the Old Testament, so he's thinking to himself, Okay, I know of situations where women could not have children in the Old Testament. There's several of them. And God granted some alternative way. I remember what Abraham did with Hagar, and he's saying, that's not the case. No, your wife, Elizabeth, yes, the one you know, she's going to have John. So there, there's this pause, and he describes this great blessing that John will be, that we just looked at, that ancient prophecy stirred up again. But look at the response of Zechariah, and, and relate with it, if you will. Zechariah said to the angel, and he only had as long to think as the angel had said what he said just before. They didn't stay long lighting the, the incense. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife has advanced in years. Now, even pious believers from a long time, people who have been walking with Christ for a long time, they can struggle with a lapse of faith. That's what we have here. Despite being alarmed by the appearance of an angel, he wasn't able to accept the message that the angel was bringing. He, he doubted God's word because his natural senses were telling him the message of the angel was impossible. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Zechariah, angel, it's an angel. But how? And look at the response. It's, it's harsh. It is harsh. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Now, for any Jewish person, they know full well who Gabriel is. He appears in the, in the book of Daniel. He's a mighty angel, appearing alongside Michael the archangel. I am Gabriel, and you just doubted what I said. That's what he's saying. You are a priest representing the people in the Holy of Holies, burning incense, and you're doubting. And look what it says. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Euangelion, gospel. I'm here to give you the gospel. You'll be the first ones to get to hear this good news, the initiation of it, the intrusion of it into time and space. You get to hear this first 
from the mouth of Gabriel, I'm telling you that I'm going to send you a son, and he's going to initiate this, this whole redemptive plan that you have longed for, that you have prayed for every day. Zechariah says, how? You know, something is a side note that's still very intriguing and interesting has to do with angels. J.C. Ryle, who I referred to earlier, says beautifully, the ministry of angels is undoubtedly a deep subject, say the least. Nowhere in the Bible do we find such frequent mention of them as in the period of our Lord's earthly ministry. At no time do we read of so many appearances of angels as about the time of our Lord's incarnation and entrance into the world. And Ryle goes on. The meaning of this circumstance is sufficiently clear. It was meant to teach the church that the Messiah was no angel, but the Lord of angels, as well as of men. Angels announced his coming. Angels proclaimed his birth. Angels rejoiced at his appearing. And by so doing, they made it plain that he who came to die for sinners was not one of themselves, but one far above them, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Zechariah says to that angel, how shall I know this? I'm old. My wife is old. And the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And now comes the discipline. Now I want you to notice what he doesn't say to Zechariah. Zechariah fails here. It's called what it is. And I would have too. I probably would have too. It'd be likened unto your preacher preaching to you the gospel every week, but then doubting it himself at times, which guess what? People do. Because we're people. That's why we need to hear it over and over again. And that's why it was written so we would have certainty about the things we have been taught. For me too. But here he is in this place of failure, and God did not say, you are no longer my child. You cannot have this unbelief like this. You're done. I cast you to hell. He didn't say any of that, but he does bring discipline. And the beauty of God's discipline for his children, it's not punishment, it's discipline. Punishment is penal, and that was all put on Christ. It's discipline to grow his faith. And this is what he says. And behold, verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place. This is a difficult, this is a harsh discipline for a priest who wants to proclaim the message, who's been praying for the consolation of Israel, who wants to tell his wife, by the way, guess what, honey? I got news for you you're going to want to hear. Because you did not believe my words, the angel says, which will be fulfilled in their time. So even the discipline will serve to build or deepen the faith of Zechariah. It will make a statement to everybody who's watching. It will, it will challenge us in our own unbelief. This pious man of God would be disciplined for his unbelief. And imagine the scene outside. You're used to the priest going in immediately, offering the incense and getting out, and then offering a word of blessing. But he wasn't coming out right away. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. No doubt some worried. Did something happen to him? And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. He couldn't give the blessing. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs of them and remained mute, trying to just talk to them. He couldn't. It's almost like when Moses couldn't go into the promised land. He couldn't, he couldn't share with them what the angel had said. He was a humbled man. He went home, could not even tell his wife the news. 
In verse 24, after these days, after we figured out how to make clear to Elizabeth, she found out. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. It's a beautiful, honest picture of God's providence working even through man's unbelief, even when God disciplines this faithful saint who loved him. He does so in a way that still manifests his glory. John Chrysostom who was a uh, relatively early church father, one of the first real great preachers of the Christian church post-apostles. He writes, Zechariah looked at his age, his gray hair, his body that had lost its strength. He looked at his wife's sterility and refused to accept on faith that the angel revealed would come to pass. It's understandable, by the way, that natural man, people who are not believers, have this doubt. Philip Ryken in his commentary says this well. This is where people always struggle, he says. They believe that the Bible was written by men, but they doubt that it was written by God. They believe that Jesus was a man, but they doubt that he was also God. They believe that Jesus died, but they doubt that he rose again. It takes faith to accept God's word, to receive God's son, to enter God's salvation. Faith in an all-powerful God. It's faith that God gives as a gift. And Zechariah had it. It was weak at that moment, but it was still faith in Christ, the one who could save him. But we all struggle with these periods of unbelief. And we don't fit that description that Riken gives. We just need God to give us more faith. We need to give, he needs to give us stronger faith. And if that's who you are, you have come to the right place. You've come to his church. Where at his church? The leadership is responsible to make sure that you receive the means of grace, the word of God, the sacraments, and prayer in all of that in fellowship with other believers, not just on your own, so that we could be certain of the things that we have been taught, that we could be bolstered in our faith, so we could be strengthened because we all waver at times. I love what another commentator says about analyzing Zechariah. He says, a well-instructed Jew like Zechariah ought not to have raised such a question. No doubt he was well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. He ought to have remembered the astonishing births of of Isaac and Samson and Samuel in old times. He ought to have remembered that what God has done once, he can do again, and that with him nothing is impossible. But he forgot all this. He thought of nothing but the arguments of mere human reasoning. In the same way it often happens in religious matters, that where human reasoning begins faith often ends. He goes on to say, or challenge us, let us learn in wisdom from the fault of Zechariah here. It is a fault to which God's people in every age have been sadly liable. The histories of Abraham and Isaac and Moses and Hezekiah, some of the kings of Israel, will all show us that a true believer may sometimes be overtaken by unbelief. Do you find yourself overtaken at times? We have God's word, we have the supper, we have access to his throne of grace as priests ourselves to go right to his throne, right to the Holy of Holies. The temple veil that was there when Zechariah went in was torn at the, at the death of Christ so that we have access, you have access directly to the throne of grace through prayer. After all, 
it seemed good to Luke, having followed all things closely for some time past, to give us an orderly account like we have before us, so that we might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Lord, our prayer for this season of reflection on the incarnation of our Lord Jesus is for a strengthened faith in your sure promises. Having seen what you have already done, we ask for an increase in faith to believe what you say that you will do. Grant us to take you at your word, that whatever you have said, please give us belief in all of it. You have said that Jesus died and rose again, so grant us faith to believe in the crucifixion and resurrection. You have said that you will forgive anyone who comes trusting in Christ, so give us assurance as we trust and rest in Christ in his finished work. You have said that you will never leave us or forsake us, so whatever troubles we may be facing this day, help us to believe that you will help us to the very end. You will not leave us. You have also said that Jesus is coming to judge the world. Help us to turn from sin and trust in Christ afresh. I pray this in his name. Amen. Let's respond by singing a wonderful hymn about the fulfillment.